Please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, and Merry Christmas! On my Christmas list this year is a new NFL team to root for. Man, the Browns beat them. Is there room for me on the Bronco bandwagon? Hey, I I wasn't sure how you'd respond to that. Look how forgiving and accepting you are. All right, I'll join the Bronco bandwagon. Uh, thank you for welcoming me. I'm, I'm without a team this year, suddenly. Um, it's, um, it's hard to believe we're at the end of our series on Shema, isn't it? We began, um, we began three months ago with just how much God loves us, and we looked next at the response He asks from us to love Him with all our hearts, all our soul, and all our might. And then we saw that when Jesus reveals the second greatest command to love others is like the greatest command to love God, God is in fact asking us to love Him by loving others, even those others we might call our enemies. And you know, even though we're at the end of this particular series on Shema as interpreted by Jesus, love God, love others, We will never be at the end, for as long as we study the Bible at least, because Jesus tells us that all Scripture, every word, every jot and tittle, all Scripture hangs on the command to love God and love others. And so as love God, love others continues to mark us as a community, more and more in the weeks and years to come, as it must. Our series on Shema continues really for the rest of our lives. We are to love God with all of every part of us and to love our neighbor as ourselves. But as this particular sermon series within that lifelong series ends this morning, I've chosen a passage that at first might seem rather odd to end with, especially at Christmas. The first story in John 8 certainly isn't a traditional Christmas story. I wonder if anyone besides you, when asked what your pastor preached on at Christmas this year, will answer, well, the woman caught in adultery, of course. Like, oh, you know, what, was she a shepherd? I mean, I But you know, Jesus said he came to seek and save the lost. That's why he came. In other words, Jesus came for the woman in John 8. And so maybe Christmas is a good time, perhaps the best time, to see what this story has to say about loving others. In fact, this story is a stunning example. We'll end with a stunning example in our series of loving others in action. Your Bibles are open to John chapter 8, and I'll begin reading at verse 2. At dawn, he, Jesus, appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. 
they made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. This is the very word of God. Amen? Amen. I'm going to do something this morning that I haven't ever done before in any lesson or sermon I've ever taught, so I'm a little nervous about it, especially since you have rocks in your hands. <laughs> I don't know if a wise shepherd is one that arms the sheep on the way into the... <laughs> this past week, while I was still preparing the sermon for today, God, through a good friend, very serendipitously handed me this small book, and it's called Dropping Your Rock by Nicole Johnson. Nicole is part of Women of Faith as well as an actress, a writer, a television producer. And for the sermon today, I'd like to present to you what she's written. Normally when I find various resources, I'll take bits and pieces from them, but I tried to do that with her book, and when I came up with what I came up with, hers was so much better. So, it's so complete, so well done, I decided to leave it as written and share all of it with you. I've made very minor additions along the way, given the time we have this morning and different ages here today. But this is, this is largely Nicole's gift to us this morning, so she deserves the recognition, appreciation, and thanks. And her story goes like this. Almost since the beginning of time, human beings have had a brutally simple way of dealing with wrong. Rocks. Someone would point out the offender in the camp or family or the clan and everyone would come running. Picking up a cold, hard ballot of stone They would violently cast their vote against wrong again and again and again until it was gone. It was their way. But one hot day in the Middle East, a man stepped in front of the rock throwers and changed things forever. A woman had been caught in the act 
Not hearsay, not suspicion, not circumstantial evidence. Caught in the very act of adultery. Dragging her out, the men forced her to stand in front of the crowd as they pressed in on her angrily with rocks in their hands. Clothes, if she had any on when they caught her, had been torn off. Hot tears spilled down her cheeks in shame or maybe anger. Where was the man? Was she his heart's love or just the afternoon's activity? There's no way to know. Either way, he wasn't there. She was alone and they were on her. They, the self-proclaimed upholders of moral righteousness, the super-pious pillars of the community armed with their bludgeoning hypocrisy and crowd-pleasing indignation over wrong. Her stomach was knotted so tightly she could scarcely breathe. Her dignity was shredded. Her spirit drenched with dread. But her hands were clenched in defiance. She'd sinned and been caught. And now she was dead-ended in a circle of judges with rocks in their hands. Have you ever noticed how good it feels to throw a rock really hard? Now, now. Your hand feels the weight of the stone, and then when you let that thing fly, there's a tremendous release. Is that what they felt that day, that each person's rock carried the weight of the community's judgment? It had become a familiar scene. No, they would yell as they threw. Wrong. Caught. Punish. They would throw and throw their fury fueled by each other as much as by the crime until the one in the center was still. And then they would revel in the grim release of sin avenged. Problem is, rocks don't hit sin. Rocks hit people. And thousands of years later, they still do. Oh, we're too sophisticated nowadays to be flinging granite, but the words that we throw in judgment and outrage are as hard and cold as any stone of old. And the release we feel when we let them go can be just as exhilarating Four teenagers get killed on a Friday night and we hurl our rocks. Well, they shouldn't have been drinking. No, they shouldn't have. But does that ease the guilt and the pain for their parents? A young woman gets raped leaving a party and someone says, she was wearing a short skirt and she deserves exactly what she got. We drag her into the circle and throw our rocks. A businessman goes to jail for a poor decision involving other people's money, and we growl, he can rot in there as far as I'm concerned. Never mind his wife and kids, we pile the rocks as high as we can. A woman confronts someone rudely about an indiscretion in her life and later phones a friend to report 
And then I told her exactly what I thought of that sin. Whap! Now that woman will be in no danger of appearing soft on wrong, while the woman she hit will wear the bruise. As we throw, we convince ourselves that if that rock lands in just the right spot, it can knock out something evil. You remember the story of David and Goliath. Plant the rock squarely in the forehead of your foe, and your side wins. And if our goal is to kill our enemy, this could be the answer. But if we hope to change a friend's heart, it definitely is not. We can sometimes knock sense into a person with a rock, but we can't knock out sin. Do you remember the scene in Forrest Gump where Jenny goes back to her childhood house after years of being gone? She stares at the old shack where her daddy, her trusted daddy, hurt her badly. We went and we found that scene, so let's watch. Sometimes, I guess there just aren't enough rocks. And there aren't enough rocks. Jenny was hurling those rocks at something bigger. She threw with all her might, venting years of pain at what that house represented, sin. The blackness that overcomes hearts and makes people unrecognizable as human beings. But there aren't enough rocks in the entire world to beat out sin. If we actually could throw a rock and hit the evil in the world, we would still run out of rocks before it was all gone. For all the wrongs that have been done to us, there simply are not enough rocks in the world to make it all right. Would there ever be enough rocks for the Holocaust survivors? Would every quarry in the state of Oklahoma yield enough stones for a man who would blow up a building killing 168 people whose only crime was showing up for work? 
Nicole published her book just before 9-11, or I would guess she would have used that example here too. All the rock throwing in the universe cannot calm what aches and burns in our souls when we have been horribly wronged. We cannot set the bone of what is broken on the earth with a cast of jagged rocks. When that one man stepped out of the crowd of rock throwers that day and scribbled in the sand, he reminded a group of angry people who wanted to beat the sin out of her that it just wasn't possible. And he wasn't going to let them try just so they could feel better. They could kill her, but it wouldn't solve the bigger problem. And he had come to solve the bigger problem so we wouldn't have to try with our little pathetic rocks. What did Jesus scribble in the sand that day? The names of the men in the crowd who had also slept with her? That would have gotten their attention. Did he just trace patterns in the sand to allow tempers time to cool? Even group vengeance can be stopped if the momentum slows. Or did he write something completely different such as, She is your daughter. That would have changed how they felt. I'm going to step out of Nicole's story for a minute, give you my personal opinion of what Jesus may have been writing in the dust. Jesus almost always uses Scripture to interpret and apply other Scripture. At issue was a provision in Torah that says to stone a woman caught in adultery. In the entire Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, the phrase written in the dust appears once. In Jeremiah 17, where Jeremiah says to God, those who turn away from you will be written in the dust. In that same chapter in Jeremiah, God also says, I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward a man according to his conduct, according to what his deeds deserve. In other words, God knows the sins of every person, and he knew the sins of every person there holding their rocks because he sees their hearts. And then Jeremiah, who himself was surrounded by the leaders of Judah, judging him to be a false prophet, says this, Let my persecutors be put to shame, but keep me from shame. Let them be terrified, but keep me from terror. Bring on them the day of disaster. Destroy them with double destruction. Oh my. I wonder if those experts who knew Jeremiah very, very well caught the illusion that perhaps Jesus may have been making twice writing in the dust. Back to the story. Whatever he wrote, Jesus drove home these words. If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Silence. No one could say anything. His words disarmed all their accusations He cut away the false high ground from under the feet of the self-righteous. And for all time, 
leveled the playing field between accused and accusers. He gave those of us who have made the worst choices of our lives a place where it's safe to be broken without fear of being destroyed. He showed us that no matter what, He would stand between us and our judges. And whenever we find ourselves part of the angry circle of rock throwers with our own rock raised, He confronts us with the freedom to choose love over judgment. He didn't make the accusers drop their rocks. He never does. He just challenged them to consider their own hearts, saying in essence, deal with yourself before you deal with anyone else. Because he knows how prone we are to judge others. The two things we judge most harshly are those things we don't struggle with at all and those things we struggle with the most. If we don't struggle with an issue, it's easy to take a hard line and have no compassion. It isn't our problem, so we don't understand why it's anyone's problem. If we do struggle with an issue, we may be the harshest judge of all because we condemn most vehemently in others the very things we try to deny in ourselves. Our own hearts are deceitful, and Jesus said, be very, very careful before we judge because if we judge others by the rock others will judge us by the rock but judge with love and we'll be judged with love most of us are used to lining up on the loveless side of judgment we've been doing it for years we've grown up in the rock rodeo becoming champion throwers at our favorite sins We can hit what we think is the bullseye from 100 yards or more. But then the day dawns that we come running with our rock, and our hand freezes at the realization that we are throwing at our own sin and will hit ourselves in the process. Or we arrive at the circle just in time to see the one forced into the center is our loved one. Or maybe one day our door is thrown open and to our horror, the circle of hate and rocks is closing in on us. Those are drop your rock moments. Life is, love is giving us a chance to choose. Such moments come at different times for each of us as when that sin we found so easy to hate now has a face and eyes maybe even our own. And what was so simple for us to judge before now convicts us deeply or breaks our hearts. When this happens, when your son tells you he's homosexual, your best friend confesses in agony she's having an affair, or your sister describes her abortion, you have a choice to leave mere theory behind and enter the gritty reality of relationship. As you listen, your teeth clench and anger erupts and your grip on your rock tightens. You want to throw it so badly. You want to say exactly what you think of that sin and try to beat it out of them. You've done it a hundred times before, hitting the anonymous sinner 
But now it's painfully different. Love is giving you a chance to choose. Seeing our own loved one in the circle is the most poignant challenge of all. For it invites us for the first time to step between the accusers and our beloved. And we can see in the mirror of our own emotions the way we've shut people out by the rigid compartments and categories we've created. We can see how callously and carelessly we've treated others because their wrong never significantly touched our lives. We can see this because it never hurt before, not like this. And we stare at the ugly face of judgment in the mirror. We drop our rocks and they fall to the ground with a flat thud of grace. If the adulterous woman had been someone's beloved, the people might have dropped their rocks for her. But she wasn't. She was an easy target for them to hit because she meant nothing to them and she was blatantly wrong. Which made it easy for the people to hide behind her sin. There was no one in the crowd without blackness in his heart, but would any one of them acknowledge that? If they could scorn her sin publicly, they wouldn't have to think about their own. So there she stood, possibly naked, a little defiant, but mostly ashamed. She fell to her knees and closed her arms tightly around herself as she braced for the first rock. She waited in agony, afraid to hope as she stared at the dirt becoming mud with her tears. She couldn't stop replaying the images of that morning. Door thrown open, being forced outside and dragged through the streets. They would never let her go. She was was so clearly caught, lost in her own thoughts, she almost missed the soft little thump of rock falling to the ground, then another and another, then shuffling, then stillness. His voice alone broke the silence. Woman, where are your accusers? Eyes downcast, she saw no feet around her, just rocks lying here and there. She still couldn't lift her head. Everyone else was gone. Only he was left. In a tender voice, he asked, has no one condemned you? No man, Lord, she said, perhaps meaning you are a man, but more than a man, what will you do to me? She was now at the mercy of God, and he was about to speak. He could have said, Now that they've gone, I want to tell you what I think of your behavior. But he didn't. For the record, he said, neither do I condemn you. For the first time since the ordeal began, she lifted her head. When we have done wrong, there is no sweeter moment in all of life than to feel the forgiveness of God. His words told her that it was all right, despite all that was wrong. And then he said one more thing. Go and sin no more. The same love that called the others to drop their rocks was also giving her 
a chance to choose. Continue the sickening slavery of wrong or walk in the freedom of forgiveness. There was a fork in the road for her too. Grace doesn't just let us off. It sets us free. With one blow, grace strikes the shackle, breaking it open so we may walk unfettered in freedom. It promises us a better tomorrow than the today we've made for ourselves. Go and sin no more. The go is the grace. No matter what happened next, she would not be punished for her crime that day. He'd granted her an undeserved pardon wrapped in magnificent forgiveness. She was free to go free. The sin no more is the cost of staying free. Could she really sin no more? It depends on the road she chose with her freedom. Would she go back to her old life, hunting furtively through the streets for the man she'd been with? Or would she feel the powerful strength that real love and forgiveness had just given her? Hold her head high and never look back. Go and sin no more. Love appears to allow evil to run right over it. But isn't that part of love's glorious strategy? In the drama of this world, the play wasn't over after Act 2. At the climax of the conflict, when it looked like evil and judgment would win, the plot took a surprise twist. The author stepped into the play. He revealed the hidden power of love, giving us a divine show and tell we would never forget, and that changed everything. Our rocks will never change the world, only pockmark it with hate and fear. Throwing rocks will never make us more loving. As we clutch and throw our rocks, we reveal our pettiness and our inability to change our own lives. Only when we drop our rocks and choose to love do we become more loving. So the next time someone trembles in fear and tells you something you really didn't want to know, or you see your sin in someone else's life, or your loved one is braced to feel your stone-cold words, you'll know what to do. Loosen your grip and listen for the flat thud of grace as you choose love over judgment. The only one who had the right to throw a rock is the one who has never done any wrong, ever. The only one who is without blackness in his own heart. The one who has never taken anything from anyone else, never compromised his own standards, never lied even a little to make, him look, make himself look better there has been only one, and only that one can pick up the rock. And he did. He became the rock and took care of our wrong for all time. And he still stands between us and our accusers. And he still lifts our heads and sets our path of freedom. When he knelt in the sand that day, just maybe he wrote these words. My rock is bigger than yours, and I'll handle this one. Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. 
Love is still giving us a chance to choose. That's Dropping Your Rock by Nicole Johnson. Now each of you this morning should have received a rock when you came in today. Let's see it. Hold it up high. If you haven't, if you didn't get one, I've got Bob Fugler and company in the back ready to run out some rocks. Okay? Uh, Let's see. Everybody put your hand down. If you don't have a rock and would like one, lift your hand up high. Okay, very few, Bob. I've got one over here. Okay, keep them high, wave them a bit, and someone will run a rock out to you. I really like the picture that Nicole gave us this morning, one of the pictures in particular. She said that grace has a sound. Did you catch it? Did you know that grace sounds like something? She said that grace sounds like rocks being dropped on the ground rather than being thrown at someone or clutched tightly. Grace sounds like the thud of rocks being dropped to the ground. And I'll be honest with you, I've been waiting all week to hear what it sounds like when a community chooses love, chooses grace over judgment. So would you stand, please, with your rocks in your hands now? We're about loving our neighbors here, so be careful of your neighbor's feet. Imagine with me, if you will, someone has been dragged before us guilty of sin. (laughs) Was that on purpose or not? Because if not, it was really good timing. But wait, you got to wait. Um, (laughs) Amen. Someone's been dragged before us guilty of sin. Maybe even it's someone you know who has hurt you or someone you don't know that has hurt you. Maybe it's someone you know and even love. Or maybe it's a complete stranger. Jesus was faced with just such a situation in his life. The movie, The Passion, captures this moment very, very well. Let's watch.
here we stand, rocks in our hands. Someone who has hurt you, someone who has sinned, has sinned. There they stand. Which will you choose? Love or judgment? Well, are you with or without sin? If you wish to choose love and grace over judgment, then on the count of three, I'll go three, two, one. I invite you to drop your rocks. And we'll listen to what grace sounds like. Are you ready? Three, two, one. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. Let's pray. Father in heaven, help us to love like your son loved that day and every day of his entire life. Help us, Father, when we feel the bile of judgment clenching our rock ready to throw, help us to remember your words that it's yours alone to judge and it's ours to love. Help us to be able to discern those situations where tough love is necessary. But whatever it is you have us do, Father, help us to lean toward, look for, earnestly wrestle with how can we be the love of God to whatever person you have cross our path. Fill us again and anew with the anointing of your spirit, of your very presence, of you yourself, Father. Because we can't do this on our own. We need you desperately. And as we look again at the baby in the manger, can we find hope? Renew us with a sense of hope and encouragement, Father, that love wins. We love you. And in Jesus' name, all God's people said, Amen. Amen. On your way out, red envelopes, please. Let's get them out of here and into the community working. And number two, Christmas CDs are still available. You're going to want to have those, that music in your car this Christmas season, I know. Look for those in the back. God bless you all. Amen.